Technology is advancing at pace across the energy sector. As we progress towards net zero, we want you to stay ahead of the conversation. Welcome to the Net Zero Technology Centre's podcast series, Transition Talks, where we'll be joined by industry experts at the forefront of the energy transition as we examine the challenge and explore the solutions. Hi, Jamie, and welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Uh, thanks for having me on. No, you're very welcome. I'm very keen to hear from you. I know you've been working on a really interesting report um, with the team looking at floating offshore wind and how it can power hydrogen production, green hydrogen production. So that's what I'd really like to talk to you about. But before we dive into that, I'd kind of like to know a little bit about yourself. How, how did you find yourself coming to work for NZTC? So I was offered the chance to come on a secondment from my parent organisation, Wood, where I do subsea engineering across oil and gas, offshore wind and, and other industries. And technology development's always been something I've been uh, really interested in. I'd done prior secondments at another organisation, uh, the National Subsea Research Initiative, for a year or so. So the opportunity to come in and do kind of front-end technology development work for an organisation like NZTC was really appealing to me. And I believe you started off with that was your first job after graduating, was it? Yes. So I started there in, in 2013, back when it was uh, Wood Group Kenny in their, what was the MCS Kenny part of the business doing kind of riser and global floating system design, which is still what I do two days a week. That's the day job. And then I get to be involved in kind of interesting new pieces of technology and new emerging industries through NZTC and through Wood as well. And do you feel that this whole secondary experience working on this project is of benefit to Wood when you go back there? Do you think um, you can apply some of this knowledge? Absolutely, yeah. Um, And not only that, I've been able to use knowledge I've built through projects I've worked on at Wood into into the work I'm doing here on, on floating offshore wind in particular. Excellent. So this is really very different. Floating offshore wind green hydrogen production. I don't think too many people will know what that is, so let's try and unpack that for a bit. How would you describe or how would you explain what the project that you've been working on is all about? So this study that we worked on was focused on green hydrogen production in the UKCS, uh, the UK Continental Shelf, and how that could impact or what opportunity that would present for the UK supply chain. How we looked at that was we developed a a number of case studies, uh, four in total, actually with my colleagues at Wood, in order to explore kind of multiple, really all the ways you could combine a floating offshore wind farm with a green hydrogen production facility. So that was taken you know, the same floating offshore wind farm of about one gigawatt scale, which is about the scale. Some will be bigger that you'll see in, in the Scotland projects and locating that close to shore and producing the hydrogen onshore, moving that further offshore in and around oil and gas facilities, which may look to use hydrogen as an alternative fuel to to gas, uh, supporting partial electrification and decarbonisation of those facilities. 
And then the, the kind of final option would be producing the green hydrogen offshore, but from a more remote facility where that oil and gas infrastructure isn't really in place and may have to be uh, developed separately. So to a lay person, i.e. me, and probably many of the listeners to this, this podcast, the first question popping into mind would probably be, surely it's more expensive to produce hydrogen offshore than it would be onshore, because you've got all sorts of associated logistics costs and what have you. So what are the findings pointing towards? Firstly, it is it is more expensive to produce offshore than onshore. That's what the study, um, the kind of economic side of the study that we've finished shows. But it was more that we, we looked at those options more to explore uh, the scale of cost reduction that would be required to get to where the government, the UK government, through their hydrogen white paper, are projecting green hydrogen production costs to be in 2050 when it's predicted to make up a significant part of the UK energy mix. In terms of why you might do that rather than just producing all onshore, one reason would be if you're looking at uh, utilising the hydrogen on repurposed oil and gas facilities, for example, then it, it makes sense to produce the hydrogen next to those facilities or on those facilities rather than exporting the electricity back to shore and then the hydrogen back out again. And a second reason would be to help facilitate export to other countries, such as those on, on the continental Europe. Uh, again, if you're going, it sort of cuts the export distance um, somewhat. Okay, that's, that's, that kind of makes sense, I guess. Um, so, But you, you, in this report, you'll be diving into the both the economics and the, the technical feasibility, I guess, of, of both of, of that issue in particular. Yes. And on the economics, we've we've only really considered the the upstream side of the costs, which show that producing offshore is more exp- inherently more expensive than producing onshore. But once you get into looking at who your end user is, what your end market is, that brings in differences in midstream cost and downstream cost that may well maybe not quite level that playing field but certainly cut the gap when you actually take into account those considerations super so i guess this report's going to add to the body of knowledge that's already out there in terms of our understanding of hydrogen and how it can be used both onshore or offshore how it can be produced cost effectively etc and how can people interact with you and the team to to get more information as you know how do they use this information so i mean the information the main feedback the report will give is more the the opportunity the size the prize and really the scale of cost reductions that are required in order to make this particular technology economically feasible it doesn't touch so much on the on the technical feasibility side in terms of, of interacting with us, this report was put out through a alliance that the Technology Centre has with the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. Um, and that alliance was set up to progress projects and technologies in areas that are mutually beneficial to the decarbonisation of the offshore oil and gas industry uh, and also advanced deployment of offshore renewables and, and hydrogen technologies 
So the main way to interact would be through that. We have a, a common mailbox, eta at netzerotc.com, where um, companies, developers are, are free to get in touch with us and explore opportunities. Because I'm sure developers will want to get in touch to explore those opportunities because part of what you're doing in the report is identifying, as you said, the size of the prize, you know, how much value there is in this particular approach. In terms of the supply chain um, work that you've, you've been doing in the report, are there any sneak peeks that you'd like to share with us? Any kind of findings that you just want to emphasise to make people want to go and read the report? Well, the core finding would be that size of the prize um, for the UK supply chain. So what we looked at was building on a piece of work that the Technology Centre and the, the Catapult had done together a couple of years ago on the, the integrated energy vision for the UK energy system in 2050. That looked at a number of scenarios, uh, three in total for what the UK energy mix might look like in 2050 with kind of increasing ambition as to how much job creation would be in the UK versus abroad and how much we would reduce our reliance on, on imports and increase the UK's energy security. Two of those scenarios have green hydrogen making up a part of the UK energy mix. So we, we look to those two scenarios, how much hydrogen would be part of the UK's annual energy mix and how much off, uh, floating offshore wind would be required to produce the requisite amount of, of green hydrogen. Uh, taking kind of the total spend required to get the project to that size and assuming that the projects are meeting the UK government target of 60% local content, you're looking at between a 20 billion and 70 billion pound spend in the UK supply chain to develop these projects. Um, that's over the life cycle of the project, so capital as well as uh, operating over the lifetime of those of those projects. So that was the, the core finding. Excellent. I guess that 60% local content, UK local content, is really important. The supply chain is obviously going to be looking at this as a major opportunity. There'll be gaps in what we can and cannot do in the supply chain, I'm sure, but what a tremendous opportunity for us to develop a an indigenous cluster of uh, developers who can take advantage of of the floating offshore wind and hydrogen combination. And and we looked at that in the report at a, at a high level uh, in terms of where are the main areas of spend on these projects, floating offshore wind projects and green hydrogen projects, and where are the UK supply chain's current strengths, capabilities, or really uh, how many what, what proportion of jobs could we expect to be created in the UK for a floating offshore wind power green hydrogen project in all these areas? And does that equate to a 60% uh, local content target for a project? And um, what we've found is that for both the float, well, for the floating winds in particular, the UK currently would not meet that, that local content target without investment in the in the supply chain, particularly in areas of, of capital expenditure. You have two areas in particular there which uh, which make up a significant proportion of the spend. One is the the floating substructure manufacture and the second being being the wind turbines. And you know that makes sense it's the two biggest pieces of equipment in an offshore wind farm. But if you look at 
certainly the damage, the floating wing damage chairs have been installed to date. None of the fabrication of those or the manufacture of those is, has been done in the UK. The turbines are are dominated by by OEMs who are incumbent to mainly continental Europe and, and East Asia. But certainly there's an opportunity with the right investment in, in port infrastructure and, and local fabrication infrastructure that we could capture more of the, the floating substructure manufacturer jobs and use that to, to get towards that 60% target on the floating wind side. And that's a big market opportunity. Huge in terms of Scotland, just the the sheer number of of units that will need to be installed over a fairly short space of time. It, in terms of you know the nature of a product itself, it's an entirely different beast from what we're used to doing offshore. Presently, usually you're kind of installing one big floating structure uh, with 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 some uh, other infrastructure off of that. But for a gigawatt, two gigawatt, three gigawatt scale Scotland project, that's potentially over 100 floating units per project, which all have to be installed as quickly as they safely can be, because until you can get them installed, you're not paying back your investment in your in your project. So we're looking at a massive, uh, a massive level of investment to make sure that we can achieve economies of scale in producing these um, floating substructures. And I guess we're going to have to be churning them out at a fairly rapid rate um, rather than have big, long project lead times for <laughs> that we're used to, I guess, for, for single facilities offshore. Precisely. And we're going to have multiples of these projects all competing to do that that same uh, activity at the same time. Wow. And, and hopefully in the same places if they're, if they're going to meet these supply chain targets, which, which they need to do to, to get their licences. Well, wow, that sounds like an amazing opportunity, but um, I'm really glad that you've taken the time to, to work with the team and develop this project with the, um, the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. If people really want to hear more about it, where can they go and hear more about the project? I think you mentioned the Tech 20 previously. Sure. So we've already we've already um, hosted a Tech 20 where the recording of which has been uploaded to the Net Zero Technology Centre YouTube channel and website and I'll also be presenting the findings at Global Offshore Wind 22 conference in Manchester in June June 21st or 22nd I believe What an excellent opportunity for you to get the message out Well Jamie, it just uh, remains for me to say thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak to us, it sounds like a fascinating piece of work, looking forward to seeing it come to fruition and uh, I wish you all the best with your presentation at the, at the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Transition Talks. You can listen to all podcasts at netzerotc.com forward slash podcasts, or you can subscribe to get instant access to all the new episodes before they drop. See you next time.